You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. You know, it is so good to have you here with us today. If you're a dad and you're visiting or whatever, welcome. We're super glad you gave us part of your special day today. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, yes, you've already heard uh, what today's topic is about. So at the end of the, the 11 o'clock service last week, I made a little joke, and uh, it just kind of came out. So one of the principles of leadership that will be relevant today is if you find your strength, you find your weakness, right? If you find your strength, you find your weakness, right? You locate one, the opposite will automatically be true. Well, one of, one of my strengths is the ability to kind of connect with people. And one of the ways that I do that is through levity, through, through making a joke. The downside, the weakness to that is when I make a joke in the worst moment imaginable. Um, like when I ran up to a volunteer in Colorado and his house had just burned down and I made some joke about how exciting it would be to be able to go and buy everything new again. Uh, my wife looked at me and said, are you an idiot? And I was like, apparently I am. I don't know why I thought that was a good idea. Well, to close our service last week at the 11 o'clock only, I just said, hey, if this was hard for you today, we just want you to know we love you. We're so glad you came. And uh, just come back next week where we talk about sex. And that was the last thing I said. I was like, all right, we'll see you next week. And people kind of chuckled. There was this collective chuck, except for one um, older lady in our church looked at her friends at the 11 o'clock service and said, well, I sure hope he doesn't send us home with homework. <laughs> so welcome to Kingsway. This whole series is based around this thought that everybody's got an opinion, right? And we live in a culture and everybody's got an opinion. And ironically, we were always told there were certain things you just can't talk about in mixed company. And now anything is on the table. You can talk about anything, any day, anytime. And so what I want to do today is we're going to open the Bible. I'll show you how we get here. And then what I want to do is just, just go wherever God's word takes us, okay? So let's say a prayer for our fathers to be blessed. And let's say a prayer for this message. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for our dads. God, thank you for the godly men who said on this day, when we could go golfing or camping or, or hunting or whatever, fishing, uh, we're gonna pause and just connect with you. God, I pray a blessing over every man who is either in here in person or watches this online because you are of utmost important in their lives. And so they're here to do that. And God, I just pray that you would give them wisdom as, as husbands, as fathers. I know it's not the same thing, but I just pray you'd give them wisdom to lead and to lead well in a way that reflects you to this world. And uh, we love you. Lord, be with us now. Give me wisdom uh, from you to be able to speak the truth in love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's where we are picking up our story. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the book of Luke, and so we're just gonna jump right in. Luke chapter seven, verse 36 says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, first of all, um, <clears throat> it'd be important for you to know there are like four different stories very similar to this one in the gospel books. And uh, when I say different stories, we don't know if they're actually all four the same story or if there's four different stories or if some are the same and some are different. There are enough unique differences to make us think there are at least two different stories 
probably three different stories, and that it's possible that two of these are actually the same story. So just give an example. In one of the gospel books, I think it's the book of Matthew, I didn't write this down, uh, it tells a similar story that happens at, at a guy's house. He's Simon, but he's not Simon the Pharisee. That's this story. He's Simon, I think it's the leper who was healed by Jesus. So because of these similarities, again, we don't know if they're all the same or all different, but you get some different details, and it's easy to conflate them and make them think they're the same story. So we're going to focus on the details of this story. If you're familiar with the other stories, I want you to throw those out for a minute, because part of what's happening here is this Pharisee, Pharisees, as I told you before, they would be very wealthy. They've got a lot of money and resources in the community, and they would love to throw these banquets. And in these banquets, they would invite their buddies to come and hang out, and it was uh, a really big deal to have a guest of honor because it was like you showed how important you were. It's not dramatically different today, is it? Like, it's a big deal if you could get a big-name person to come to your house, and when they came, for other people to see that. But one of the other details of the story is that uh, at the end of these meals that they would have, there would often be heated discussion and debate about a particular topic. So you have Pharisees, they're one of the religious groups of the day, they're the, have lots of power, they're the people, they were like the most holy, the most righteous, they're the best of the best of the best, and they'd love to get together and basically show everybody else why they're wrong. They love to get together and have these heated discussions. No doubt that is probably what's happening in this environment. Jesus is expected to eat the meal, and at the end of the meal, they're going to have a heated discussion about some things Jesus has been saying or teaching. That's the idea behind probably what's happening here, which lays a little bit of the groundwork. In addition to that, uh, when I went to Israel last year in February, um, I, I took pictures of everything I could so I could come back and help you see what I saw. And one of the things I saw that I thought was cool for you to see, I just wanted to see if I could make that confusing, is uh, <laughs> we went to this store and they had everything, you know, anything you could, that they could sell you. And uh, there were two particularly very detailed drawings of the Last Supper. And it gives you an idea of what a dinner environment would have looked like in this house. There weren't tables and chairs. So I don't know how well this is going to come out for you because it's a piece of wood that's been very well drawn. I really wanted to buy it. I just didn't have thousands of dollars. It's super cool. So here's a picture of what it looked like. And uh, I know this may not be uh, easy to see. Uh, this is why we need new cameras. This is my next push for relentless pursuit. So if you'd like to support us. No, you can get an idea of just the detailed nature of this. So you can see here in the middle, there is like a table that was low to the ground. And then what would happen is they would either sit or recline. So over here, you have somebody reclining with their feet out behind them. This person is sitting up right here, reclining, sitting, sitting, sitting. See how it kind of goes around? This person's reclining. Now, this is a picture of the Last Supper, but this is similar to how all of the meals at the time would have gone. So there would have been a, you can get another picture here. It's just, you know, one I would turn my camera this way and the other one would turn my camera this way. I'm not sure it's any clearer, but you can kind of get an idea how the tables would have been on the floor and you would have either been sitting, depending on, you know, when your legs start to hurt, your back starts to cramp, whatever, or leaning down with your feet behind you. Now that's super relevant for the very next thing that the text says. Take a look, verse 38, yeah. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, so what that tells us is Jesus was laying down. He's one of the people laying down at the table. Now, often what would happen in these moments is people would come into the, the kind of the, the back and outside portions of the room. A lot of times the doors were open and people could come in. So the important people sat at the table. Everybody else was allowed to come in and just listen in and learn. But you had to be welcomed. 
Does that make sense? Like you, yeah, anybody can come in, but you, there was a, a welcoming that was about to happen or not happen in her situation. So she was probably either snuck in the room, nobody noticed because they were focused on what was happening, the heated conversation that was happening or whatever it was, or she just walked right in the door. Perhaps somehow she was hidden there. But she walked in and she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and she kissed them and poured perfume on them. This would be weird in our culture and no less so in theirs. In fact, it might've even been weirder because while I'm fairly certain because I've been walking in these shoes for a few hours now that if you took my shoe and sock off, there'd be a sweaty foot in there. It would be nothing like the foot of a man, Jesus, who'd been walking in the dirt. Probably stepping in animal urine and feces periodically. Nobody wants to. It's just really hard to always miss it. That's why it was customary when you came into a meal, they would have water, or at least the Jewish people did, and you would wash off your hands. And in wealthier homes, you would have servants who would also wash off your feet. If you do know the story, this is what's going on in the moment where Jesus takes a servant's towel, wraps it around his waist, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. You may have heard that story. It's a really big deal because Jesus is showing in that moment what a servant does. He takes the position of humility and service. But it was customary. It was expected. This is what you would do. And she comes to Jesus' feet probably caked in mud and other things, and begins to clean them with her hair and her tears and her kisses. And when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. A few things. This gets to the heart of probably, we'll find out later in the story, I'll just tell you now, this Pharisee's name is Simon. He's not Simon Peter, who's the disciple, and there's other Simons, just like there's lots of Johns, you know, there's lots of characters with similar names, it can make it confusing, there's lots of Marys, but he's Simon the Pharisee, and um, the reason that's important is, is because Jesus is going to call him by name in a minute, but this Pharisee has probably heard of what Jesus has done. Perhaps he's even seen some of the miracles that Jesus has performed. And he's got this question in the back of his mind. Is this guy really a prophet of God? Because if you're a prophet of God, you could do miracles. But if you're not a prophet of God and you're doing miracles, that means you're doing it by another spirit, another power, which he will be accused of later in the book of Luke by these same people. So this guy, this Simon, he's trying to discern which one is he. Is he of God or is he of an evil power? But because this woman has come in and she's cleaning his feet, he comes to the conclusion, there's no way this man can be a prophet. There's no way. No prophet of God will let a woman like that do that to him. Why? Well, I've read a ton of commentaries. And I thought this quote summarized the best. What it is we kind of know and can extrapolate about her. It says, she's a sinner in the city. That is a woman known in the city as a sinner. Undoubtedly, this characterization marks her as a prostitute by vocation, a whore by social status, 
contagious in her impurity and probably one who fraternizes with Gentiles. That's non-Jews, I included that, for economic purposes. This comes from J.B. Green. Now, the reason I say that is the, the biblical text, Greek and English and any other language has been translated into, it doesn't tell us what her sins are. And I love that. And part of the reason I love that is because the New Testament is showing her dignity and honor where everybody else has taken her dignity and her honor. Make sense? But it's almost a guarantee that that's her background. The reason she is so well known in the community is a sinner. There's only so many options available as to what it is she has done that's labeled her that way. Now, the Pharisees, as I told you, they're the best of the best of the best. And they expected not only that you had moral purity, but that you didn't dare uh, make yourself dirty by associating with people who didn't do those things, or that did those things, I should say, that, that didn't hold to the rules and the laws that the Pharisees held to. But this brings up a great question, the one that I really want to answer today, and that is, does God care who has sex? Because the world that we live in, at least here in modern-day America, we are told, no, God doesn't care. And that it's nothing more than an exchange of fluids between two people. That's it. Except we all know that it's more than that. And the reason we all know it's more than that is because this is why it's so awkward when that exchange happens happens, and then it's a one-night kind of thing, and there's just this emptiness that occurs. Because we all know intuitively there's something more to it, but we don't, we don't know what to do with it. And God deals directly with that throughout the scriptures, which we'll do in just a moment. I remember when I was in high school, I took a, uh, my first sociology class, and the professor, he said something to the effect of, this isn't a quote, but it's what I can remember a couple of decades later, but he said something to the effect of, the only reason that, that, that certain dress codes or certain codes of morality exist is because culture has said they need to exist. In fact, he asserted that if you go to cultures where people wear less clothing, then people are um, aroused by a different set of things. And then he went on to make his argument. And he said, if you go back to, and I believe he said the medieval times, but I'm not 100% sure the time frame he said now, he said when ladies would wear full-length dresses, if a woman would just barely expose her ankles and you could see her ankles, men would become aroused because it was provocative. It was like, oh, I saw her ankle. And so culture created that. And so what I thought was hilarious is uh, when I met my now wife, um, I would joke all the time that um, her elbows were just so attractive and that, because he made this assertion that, that if, if we started saying everybody needed to cover their elbows, it's provocative. And then if somebody exposed their elbows, then that would be, that would become, you know, like, a, like an arousing kind of thing. So I would just look at my wife and say, you've got the nicest elbows of any woman I've ever seen. And she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then there's that find your strength, find your weakness, you know, <laughs> going on. Okay, so trying to bring some levity to the moment for a moment. But the reality is in the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God is the one who clothed them. They covered themselves in shame, but God is the one who clothed them. It was God's idea to cover the parts. There's a reason. 
Because it's not just an exchange of fluids between two people. It's not just a, you know, man parts are different than women parts, and until we're old enough to really understand those parts, it's because this thing that was created by God to bring beauty between a married man and a married woman um, can easily get abused. Like every single one of God's great gifts, it could get abused. And it has for thousands and thousands of years. Now, I say that because Paul's dealing with this in the book of 1 Corinthians. And you got to know, like, Corinthians is like any modern-day seaport city in America, New York, Seattle, whatever it is. And because it's a city that sat there in, in, in off-land, what would happen is these men would go out to sea, um, and they would buy various goods, and then they'd come into port, and they'd sell them, and they'd make a bunch of money. But also there in Corinth at the top of the hill was a temple dedicated to one of the various Roman goddesses. And it was typical that you would come in and um, have a moment with the temple prostitutes. Now, what's happening is as the, the people in town are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Paul is calling them to stop doing that. Stop doing that. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians 6.15, he says this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Now, Paul's teaching on this subject is interesting because basically what he's telling us is it's not just an exchange of fluids. This is not just two people coming together, having a moment, and moving on. Something deeper, more profound is happening in that moment. And this quote, the two will become one flesh, is right out of the book of Genesis before the fall occurred, before the flood occurred. This is when God made everything and it was perfect. You had man, you had woman, and they could come together and be united and be one flesh. Now, this is not the focus of today. In about three or four weeks or so, when we're talking about Songs of Solomon, we'll go much deeper on that. But <clears throat> suffice it to say, Paul is talking in the very least about sex, He's also talking about way more than that. The concept of oneness is not just about that moment. It's about way, way, way more than that. We'll give some wisdom and advice over the next couple months on that. But for now, it is at least about that. And Paul is saying, you know this. You know this. So every time you do this, something is happening at the spiritual level. Because God designed sex to be an expression of oneness between one husband and one wife for life. One husband, one wife for life, till death do us part, is what we used to say at weddings. That is what God designed it for. And it's supposed to be an expression of beauty and connectivity and love, not just an exchange of fluids. So he goes on, chapter 6, verse 17. He says, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. This is important because... And I really, I, I, I wish I had another half hour to uh, pontificate on this a little bit. I don't, so I'm going to make a statement that may ruffle some feathers, take it to Jesus, and discern with him whether I'm right or wrong, okay? Here we go. What we are talking about is a book written to the church in the city of Corinth, which is applicable to every single person, either listening online or right here in this room today, who calls himself a Christian. While the principles in this are applicable to, to people who don't call themselves Christians, we don't hold people who don't call themselves Christians accountable to our standard. We as Christians have agreed, this is the rules we're willing to play by. People who are outside of the faith, we shouldn't be surprised when they don't do this. They never agreed to do this. 
How we play that out, that's another conversation for another day. What I'm trying to say is, Christian, these verses are for you. If you are considering Jesus Christ and you think this one's too hard, Woo, I really want you to wrestle with this one because this is what Jesus is going to call you to. He wants to be one with you. Notice the word here is the exact same word in the other verses. Jesus wants you to be one with him, connected with him, deeply intimate with him. And because we are one with the Lord, we commit to this oneness with only our spouse. That's Paul's argument. We have offered Jesus our bodies. We made this great exchange. On the cross, he took our sin. Now, what we get is we receive his life by giving him our life. Here's my body. Here's my heart. Here's my mind. Here's my soul. Here's my strength. What I'll take is eternal life, eternal connection, eternal intimacy, eternal provision, eternal love, eternal filling of God, which is far better than anything else I could find on this earth. So I'll make this great exchange with you, but you get me in return. And he's like, great, that's what I want. Now, what I'm asking Jesus would say is I want you to commit your body to this act only with your spouse. Now, this is not new teaching here at Kingsway. I would say one to three times a year, I cover this content in some form or fashion. Then I'll sit down and have plenty of conversation with people in my office. And I find that people know the content, they just don't practice it. And I say that, if you're out there and you're like, how does he know? I'm saying it because we live in a world that tells you it's just an exchange of fluid. No one cares. It's not a big deal. But God says, I care. And it is a big deal. In fact, Paul goes on, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Run away. Don't play games with it. Don't date it. Don't flirt with it. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Remember, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're one with him, so therefore, honor God with your body. In fact, that's what he says next. Look at verses 19 to 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Let me just make this really, really clear. Okay, so if you're dating and not married, this act is not for you. If you're engaged and your wedding is coming, but it's not yet, it's three months, six months, 12 months, 18 months out, this is not yet for you. If you are married <clears throat> and you're flirting with somebody else, that is not for you in that other relationship. It is only for you in the relationship where you stood at an altar before God and said, till death do us part. I don't know how to be any clearer. God created it as a gift for you. And yes, God cares. God cares who has sex. God cares. But he cares more about you. And I mean that. When I was in high school, there's this thing that started in America called True Love Waits. And they give out promise rings to everybody. I don't know if you guys remember this or if anybody was a part of that. And I happened to miss that night. I don't know, remember why now. I just remember my, all the kids' youth group came back with a ring and I didn't have one. I was like, what happened? Like, man, we went to this event and all these kids were crying and they gave out rings and we all made promises. And I would say the vast majority of those kids did not keep their promise. Um, and the reason I say that is what we ended up creating in America over the last 50 years is we took the truth of scripture, which I'm laying out right now, 
but we removed the grace of Scripture. And so any kids who messed up, any kids who didn't keep their promise, we ended up beating them up, not physically, just emotionally, to where there was an entire generation of people who just carried this, I am dirty and unclean, and I don't know how to get the stain off me. And that's exactly how this woman felt. She came into the presence of Jesus. She clearly had already heard or seen his teachings. She already felt drawn to him. She never felt pushed away. She never felt condemned. She knew what the truth was. It was convicted about that truth. But in Jesus' presence, she felt accepted and loved. In fact, Luke 7, verse 40, Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. That would be almost two years of wages. And the other 50, that'd be roughly two months of wages. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I think that's important because Simon wouldn't look at her. She was dirty. She was stained. She is that notable sinner in our community. Do you see her? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. So now we get a picture of just how gross this moment really was. Because see, Simon the Pharisee, when Jesus came in as the distinguished guest, he should have called in the servants to clean off Jesus' feet. But Jesus is saying, you didn't even treat me like a distinguished guest. You didn't even treat me with honor and dignity. You treated me <clears throat> like a second-class citizen. Which also tells you Simon's heart in the conversation. This heated debate that's going on, Simon doesn't really want to know Jesus. He wants to prove him wrong. But Jesus is going to take this woman, the woman that everybody else is judging and condemning, and he's lifting her up as an example because he's saying, you didn't even treat me with dignity, but she has fallen on her knees, used her tears and her hair to clean my feet. Simon, look at her. Look at her. You're so busy judging and condemning her, you don't see her. And he says, you did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. I love this because what Jesus is saying, I didn't forgive her because she just did this to my feet. No, no, no. I have forgiven her, and that's why she did this to my feet, as her great love has shown. She's, she gets it. She gets what I'm really about. She understands what I have released her of. She gets it, and she just can't wait to show me her gratitude. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. In case there's any question, ma'am, we don't know your name, we don't know exactly what you've done, but I'm gonna show you dignity. So Simon, he won't even look at you. I'm gonna look right at you, and I forgive you. I forgive you of all of it. So listen, I don't know where you are and I don't know how you got to this place and I don't know what you're dealing with and I don't know how this message hits you, but I know this. However you got to where you are right now, Jesus wants to radically impact what happens next. In fact, I have a, a little testimony from a ministry called I Am Second. They do videos, testimonies. 
I just thought it would really make a modern day example of this story. Let's take a look. So when I was 22, I thought it was a good idea to move to Hollywood. I move out there and I have a, like a, a meeting set up with an agent that goes well and I'm in proximity to all these jobs. It's just gonna be easy. It was hard. The grind wasn't something that I was really prepared for. I had to, had to make ends meet. So I got a job working at this restaurant. And while I'm at this restaurant, these girls come and sit down. And they ask me right away, like, hey, do you want to be an actor? And I was like, yes, that's why I'm here. But what they said next, I wasn't prepared for. They said, do you want to be in the porn industry. And they invited me to meet with their agent. And I meet with their agent, and I knew that this was not a place that I should be, but I, I went anyway. And this agent asked me a few questions. He said, what do you want to accomplish? I was like, well, I want to be an actor, and I guess I want to be famous. And he's like, great, that's perfect, because you'll be able to go further than you could ever imagine. You'll be famous, you'll make all this money, you'll be the guy. People will know your name. And then I agreed to do one. I was like, sure, okay, I'll do one film. And doing that one film, I felt shame, I felt guilt. And then afterwards, I remember looking at this check and just thinking, what have I done? This scene had essentially gone viral and my name was attached to it. And then I was kind of dating someone at the restaurant that I was working at and then I told her what I did and all of a sudden, She's telling me to take a hike. I'm humiliated, I'm ashamed. I don't have friends really anymore. I can't go back to that restaurant. I don't have a job anymore. And then I get a phone call and it's the agent me saying, hey, do you want to sign a contract? And I didn't know what else to do. So I said, yes. And that one film turned into six years and over a thousand films. I made the money. I found the success. I accomplished being famous. And when I was at the pinnacle of my career, I won Performer of the Year. It crushed me because I thought once I won that award, I would be happy. But it didn't work. It left me empty and broken and disappointed. And it actually didn't fix the pain that I had. It actually escalated the pain. It deepened the depression. And I found myself in a place so deep and so dark that I was certain that I didn't have a life ahead of me worth living. And I started contemplating, 
what would it be like to take my life? I didn't feel like there were any going back. I didn't feel like I would ever be a husband or a father or contribute in any capacity because who's gonna want anything to do with me? My life felt like it was over and I wanted it to be. Joshua didn't even exist. I went by a pseudonym. I was called that pseudonym on set. I was called that pseudonym in real life by my barber at the gym. I didn't exist. I'm walking into this bank and I was going to deposit this check and after I slide this check across the counter and, and you know she gives me the receipt and I go to walk away, she looks at me and says, Joshua, are you okay? And what she didn't know that it had been almost a year since I had heard my name. And it crushed me. So I ran home and I called my mom. The next thing I know, I'm picking up the phone and I'm quitting, calling my agent, my PR person. I'm putting on a press release, I quit. And I run for my life. I moved back home with my mom and I just applied to every gym in the area. And finally a gym called me back and they hired me and I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina and started working at a gym there. But I kept being recognized over and over again. And it was just so humiliating because all I wanted to do was not be that person. I just wanted it to stop. I just wanted to be me. I worked my way up in this gym um, to a management position and this girl walks in and I ask her out on a date. And she says, no, <laughs> she said, no. Um, and then she came back a little, a little bit later and said, okay, well, we can go for a run. So I, I agreed to meet her. She gets there and we started walking and talking. And I was like, hey, I need to tell you something. I, I've done a little bit of porn. And she was like, what did you, what? I was like, okay man up, just tell the truth for once. And then I told her everything. She looked at me and said, you know, a person's not defined by the worst thing they've ever done. And a person's not defined by the greatest thing they'll ever accomplish. She said to me, I believe God defines who you are. Do you know who God is? So I was like, yeah, I, I know who God is um, because I grew, I grew up going to church. I even believed I was a Christian. And then she prodded a little deeper. She was like, okay, well, what's your relationship with Jesus like? What's your prayer life like? And she started to ask more questions and I just didn't know the answer. And then she was like, so do you like tacos? I was like, what? <laughs> I couldn't believe that she didn't reject me. And then she invited me to church the following Sunday. And then we, we go to church and I walk in and there's this big plaque and it says, we want to love people as they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And the pastor started talking about that we've all sinned and fall short of glory of God. So we're all guilty and we all are separated from God and there's nothing we can do about it. So we're all deserving of death. What can we do? Jesus dies in our place when we're at our worst. And it just, it, it met me where I was in that moment because I believed that there's no way that someone would die for me. There's no way that someone would see value in me, saw God for who he was. And that day, the Holy Spirit just softened my heart and I gave my life to Jesus. And the beautiful part of that story is that girl that I went on that walk with is now my wife. And we've been married for six years. We have three kids and God didn't stop moving there. And then I get interested in theology and I end up going to school and getting a degree in biblical theology. So for me, the way that Jesus has become very real in my life is that he gave me a new purpose. And it's because of his love for me, it changed everything about me. I'm Joshua Broom. Now I'm second. Jesus looks at this woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. And in verse 49, it says, the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? The reason for that it's one thing to do a miracle. It's another thing to forgive a sin. As Jesus is asked at one point, well, who could forgive sins but God? And that's the point, right? The only one who can forgive sins is God. Jesus is cueing you into the fact that he is God in the flesh. And the whole point of that is if he forgives you, nobody else could take that away. Nobody else could take that away. That doesn't mean there isn't hard work to do. That doesn't mean if you've hurt your spouse, there aren't years of rebuilding trust that need to occur. What it means is nobody else could take that forgiveness away from you. Jesus looks at the woman in the very next verse and says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. The word for peace here in the Greek is a word that literally, it's, it, it's got this picture of like all these different parts being held together by a rope. You know, perhaps that same rope that at one moment you might have wanted to take your own life with. Imagine that rope being turned into something good, something positive, something holding all the different pieces and parts of your body, your heart, your soul, your mind, your relationships together. And Jesus is now pronouncing over this woman, I'm giving you something that the world cannot give you. Not only have I forgiven you, but I am giving you a peace. Your whole body that has been so broken, so disjointed, feels so dirty or stained. I get this guy, he still won't look at you. But me, I'm gonna pull all the pieces of your life together. Go have a put together life. And it's the same promise Jesus offers us today. So I don't know where you are, I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you've been. I don't know how this message lands, but I know this. Jesus wants to offer you a put-together life today. What we're gonna do right now is we're going to take communion. 
So I'm gonna ask you to take out your cup. And it's got its bread and it's got the juice. And we're gonna give you a moment to just sit with Jesus and anything you need to talk to Jesus about. You know, there's this moment in the video where Joshua is pep-talking himself, right? He's about to go on the walk with his, what would be his future wife and mother of his children. He doesn't know that at the moment. And he says, just for once in your life, just for once, tell the truth. So he does. And Jesus says, the truth shall set you free. This is the safest place on the earth. Where you're going right now, is you're going to the presence of God, he already knows everything you have to say. He knows it. He's just waiting for you to say it. So if there's something you need to talk to Jesus about right now, just take that bread, take that juice, and let the truth begin to set you free. Tell it to him. Confess it. We're told that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and good, and he will forgive us. Just go to him, and then at the end of that, thank him. Chelsea is going to come up after a few moments of silence for you to talk to Jesus, and she's just going to sing a song. I don't want you to feel like you have to sing the song. I just want you to sit. Let the words of the song wash over you as Jesus draws you into his presence. I'll start a prayer, and then I'll just hand it off to you. Father, meet us in this place, including those who watch at home online, even throughout the weeks and months and years to come. God, would you meet us and forgive us and bring us the peace that passes understanding, a peace that the world cannot give to us, a peace we can't find in more money or more relationships or bigger houses or nicer cars, a peace that can only be found with you. We love you.